Good morning again. Take your Bibles, please, and open them up to John's Gospel, chapter number 8. John, chapter number 8. It's good to be back together this Lord's Day. Don't ever take for granted the privilege that we have to assemble together, to worship together. I'm so thankful for that. I hope that you are. I hope that you wake up every day of the week ready to glorify the Lord, but on Sundays it's a special day because it's unlike any other day. We get to gather together. What a special thing. We're picking back up in our series on John after a, a, a three-week break through some psalms that I believe the Lord used to encourage our church family, especially based on the testimony of many of you since those messages. Jesus is um, in the midst of some incredible teaching here, and he's just coming off of what we know as the Festival of Booths or Shelters. That's just concluded where Jesus taught he was the Messiah, and he taught to the people that everybody everywhere had to come to Jesus Christ for light and life. If they didn't, they would die in their sin. I forget the author's name, but somebody wrote a book years ago with a controversial title called The Problem with Jesus. And you read that and you think, well, <coughs> excuse me, what's that? <coughs> I don't like that. Basically, this person was positing Jesus against every other religion and said the problem with Jesus just being another religion or another teacher in a religion is that that's not what he said. He claimed to be God and to be deity and... Either he was that or he was crazy. Jesus taught that he was the Messiah. Some believed and some claimed to believe and appeared to believe, but didn't really believe. Not all claims that we see in Scripture of faith are genuine. Not everyone who claims to be a believer is a true disciple. Jesus will make that distinction today. Some have already turned and walked away from Jesus, who were walking with him, who had seen miracles. Some of us think if we could just see some signs and wonders, everybody would light up. No, it would just make them dissatisfied for something else. Just because you are an image bearer doesn't make you a child of God. Politicians like to say we're all children of God. Preachers should never say that because that does violence to the scriptures. When a cabinet maker makes a beautiful cabinet... That doesn't make the cabinet his child, does it? That's kind of weird, right? A birth process would be necessary, and I've not heard with all the crazy news of a cabinet maker giving birth to a cabinet. That's just not the language that we use. But there are those, even in our churches, who claim to be God's son or daughter because he made me. A lost woman or man or girl or boy can have a right understanding of creation and a right understanding of the creative order, knowing that they were fearfully and wonderfully made by God, a product of God's design and handiwork, but just like the cabinet, they lack being born in this distinct way. We must be born again, the scripture says. To be children of God, you've got to come the way Jesus says to come, and that's through him. So if that was true in Jesus' day, that people would be near Jesus, but not actually be his disciples, it stands to reason, and scripture makes it plain that that's the case even today in our churches. 
across the land. So how does Jesus draw the distinction? I entitled the message today essentially that we are abiding, true disciples abide in freedom. Everybody wants freedom. We love to talk about freedom. Uh, churches and pastors get a little weird when they talk about freedom a lot of times. There's some crazy stuff being called freedom. I, I just want to show you what God's word teaches this morning about freedom, what Jesus said. I think that's important. So let me give you your first point if you're taking notes this morning. There's only three major headers. True disciples, number one, live in God's word. True disciples live in God's word. Where'd you get that from, preacher? Good question. Let's look at John 8, 31. You've got it right there in front of you. It's a, it's a precursor to a really famous verse that we're going to get through this morning. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, so these are folks that have stepped toward Jesus, they're near Jesus, but he still feels the need to draw the line of distinction. He says, thanks. So this is not just the masses that have assembled. These are folks in the Bible study group, right? This is in the Sunday school class where people made the extra effort to get near Jesus. And he draws the line in the sand and he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Many believed, but there was still this testing of their beliefs. One of the real tests of true discipleship is our continuing, abiding, remaining, and persevering in God's Word. Now that's not flashy. That doesn't fill up stadiums with light shows and smoke and mirrors and all the things, but that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to. It's not an emotional, hyped-up state. It's not an experiential state that elevates experience over truth, your subjective emotions over the objective word of God. But Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He's addressing a crowd that knows him, that's near him. This is not an unreached or underreached crowd like some of our Grace Covenant missionaries are reaching around the globe this morning. These are folks that know about him. It's a crowd that would show up probably week after week for worship. It's a crowd with people in it just like some of us this morning. Folks who post and maybe even like Bible verses that they see online. Folks who maybe have a scripture verse or something up in their uh, home. Maybe you even have John 3.16 on your bumper so the police won't know how to catch you. Sorry, moving on. It's folks who attend worship gatherings like this, women and men just like us that would identify as moral and upright people. It's to those Jesus draws the line and says, you think you're with me, get in the word. If you want to be with me, get in the word. It's to them, Jesus says, do you live in my word? He didn't say, do you know a handful of verses to get you out of a jam? He didn't say if you memorize John 3.16 and, and that's it. You need more than that to nourish you. He didn't say, do you know how to work a concordance? Or did your favorite pastor or motivational speaker say this this week? He, he didn't say, do you, do you know a couple of things kind of generally about God's word? No, he said, abide in the word. So what does that mean? To abide in the word. Well, the, the picture there, the word picture is one of, of hanging on to it. Uh, being filled with it, like you're pouring water into a pitcher this morning. Uh, it's a picture of being dominated by, controlled by. 
You say, no, 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 I don't, I don't like that definition. That sounds like what we want the Holy Spirit to do, right? We want the Holy Spirit to fill us and, and to dominate us. We, we want the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, brother, sister in Christ, dear friend attending this morning, watching online. The Holy Spirit does do those things, but he uses God's word and he always points us to Jesus. That's his job. That's what Jesus said his job description was. So how do I know if the Holy Spirit's leading me? Answer. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, he will be speaking the very words of God, not some extra biblical revelation, but this book to you, and they will point you to Jesus. That's what Jesus said he would do. We'll get to that later, but there's the simple statement concerning that. Now, God can give you biblically informed wisdom in all manners of life, but the Holy Spirit always, always points to Jesus. So we work hard to get God's word into us, so that we can be filled up and dominated by and satisfied with what God says. Let me give you a few pointers. Some of you have heard some of this before, but I want to give you a few pointers this morning on how to get into the Word practically. Just a few things that are kind of uh, normal MO. If you've been around me any length of time, you, you know some of these things, and I know all my uh, D group, all of Grace Covenant's D group folks know these very well. The first thing that you need to do is to uh, put yourself in the hearing of God's word. You actually need to hear the word of the Lord. Well, how do you hear God's word? I'll give you the first one for free. You're doing it now. Like, it's good to be around God's people where God's word is read. But I'll say this, one of the most consistent feedbacks we get from folks that are attending, and we're not special, I think you're special, but I know as a church family, I'm not trying to elevate us in any way, but here's the consistent feedback that I get from folks who are, have been churched a lot. We rarely hear this much scripture in sermons. And I want to go, what are they saying? <laughs> but I know. So hearing doesn't just mean listening to preaching. I'm telling you, get the Dwell app or the Bible app. There's an audio feature on that. You know how hot and bothered under the collar you get with talk radio every day? And you come home ready to kick the cat and break the door down when you get home and your family's like, hey, you okay? Conservatives, liberals, did we do something to you? Listen to the radio. Sounds like that's working well. We can see that your blood pressure is high, right? This vein and this vein are arguing with each other. Maybe instead of talk radio every day, maybe you put some scripture on audio and just abide in God's word on the way home. You, you put yourself in the hearing of God's word. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the words of Christ. Instead of getting all worked up about everything, why don't you get into the word? The second thing we do is we read. Hearing is not enough. You don't retain a whole lot of what you hear. As, as awesome as we preachers like to think some of our sermons are and some of our one-liners are, we really work hard to craft some of that and we're like, we'll put something out there and go like, and y'all go, mmm, 10 seconds after two sips of lemonade, you couldn't say it back to me, right? I get it. We get it. So hearing is not the most effective way. Reading helps your retention. It gets it into you. You actually have to read the Bible. Slow down when you're reading. 
It's better to get something out of a chapter or a, a pastor or a passage rather or a complete thought than it is to read a big long reading and check off a box and have no clue what you read. Slow down, get into the word. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 17, talking about those that lead well, the word of God should be read all the days of our lives. And there we learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of his commandments. We hear, we read, we study God's word, that's a little different than reading. You know that. When you had a reading assignment in high school, that's a breeze. Did you read? Yes, I did. Read that, checked it off, did the time. Can you tell me what you read? Don't even know what the book title is. Sorry, couldn't tell you if I had to. Um, We're having a test tomorrow on chapter one. You don't just read chapter one, you study. It's different. There's some work involved. Proverbs 2 points us to that. The first part of Proverbs 2 talks about what it looks like to study and to get into the word. We use the HEAR method in our discipleship groups. I don't want to confuse you, but H-E-A-R. We highlight a passage from Scripture. We then explain that passage in context, and that keeps us on the rails so we don't take a verse out of context and say, here's what it means to me. It doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it means in the Bible, right? There's application for us, and that's the A. We get into application of God's Word. How will I respond to this? Is there a sin that I need to confess or avoid? Is there a promise that, uh, that I can see that God has made or that I need to make? Is there an example to follow? Is there a command to obey? Is there knowledge of God that I need that will help shape my day? We apply the text and then the R stands for reflection. We pray that text or our response back to God. That's different than just reading the text. So we're hearing, we're reading, we're studying, and we are memorizing scripture. We're memorizing scripture. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus says his people are people of the book. Here's some great ways to get into the text. You say, I really struggle to memorize. I've heard you quote lines to songs and movies and uh, different things. And back, I know I'm really gonna date myself. When we started teaching uh, this method from the Navigators and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, one of the things we used to say is, many of us have phone numbers memorized. I'm pretty sure we can drop that now because we just say, call mom or whatever it is. That's how we know how to do it. But there are amazing things that we commit to memory, memorizing the Word of God. If only there was a normal rhythm at your local church where you did scripture memory. Okay. Uh, number five, meditate. Joshua 1, 8 and 9 says, This book of the law shall not depart from out of your mouth, but you should meditate on it day and night so that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. And then you'll make your way prosperous and have good success. Joshua 1, 8, right there. What does meditate mean? It's not mm, twisting into a pretzel and humming one note. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about rolling it over and over and over. While you're memorizing scripture, you're actually meditating on the passage and it drives it deep into your being. Disciples of Jesus Christ are people of the book. Spirit-filled Christians are those who steep in God's word. As Christians, we long for every area of our lives to be brought under the control of the Word of God. Every thought, every deed, every action, we want to conform to this book. Why? Why would we do that? First off, how does that sound to you? Does that sound awful to you? Like, ugh. 
didn't sign up for that. Ugh. Everything we do, oh, that sounds like bondage. Then you've got it backwards. Because Jesus says this is freedom. This is where freedom comes from. You may have missed what Jesus said and what the Bible teaches and what the gospel reveals. He's promised freedom to those who would obey the Bible. Every thought, deed, and action we want to see conformed. Jesus draws a clear line of distinction between his true disciples and those who are not. If you look at verse 37, he makes the statement to them. He says, look, um, you're, you're, you're different than me. I know you're of the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. What does he say? Because my word finds no place in you. Does God's word have a place in you? I'm not talking about you're reading Our Daily Bread or some devotional book about the Bible. I'm saying you get into the word so the word can get into you. His words found no place in them. Instead of getting into the word, they stayed out of the word and Jesus stayed out of them. True disciples live in the word. Secondly, this morning, true disciples know the truth about Jesus. True disciples know the truth about Jesus. John chapter number 8, verse 32. It's a famous passage about truth and being set free. He says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. King James renders that make. Both of them are right. It's a process because if you look later, it says becoming free. The truth, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This, this is not a general proverb that you can just lay on any area of life. You can apply this however you want, whenever you want, just to any situation you want. Jesus is speaking about knowing the truth about who he is. There's not freedom in just discovering the truth. There's freedom in discovering the truth about Jesus. <clears throat> Let me give you a passage really quickly from Hebrews 10 that says it better than I could. Just kind of underscoring the fact that this is really about him. In Hebrews 10... Verses 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, Christ is speaking here, watch this. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the books. That King James renders that in the volume of the books. Verse 8, when he said the above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. What's he doing? He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? What's the point here? Lots of words, but what's the point? The point is, it's all about Jesus. Truth that matters. It's truth that causes us to die to self and more readily reflect the Lord Jesus Christ to those around us. True disciples know that Jesus is God. True disciples know that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. True disciples don't struggle with the fact that Jesus was virgin-born, that he lived a sinless life, and that he is truly God and truly man. True disciples know that Jesus Christ is the only way to glorify God, which is what we were created for. True disciples are worshipers 
Lovers of Jesus. Lovers of people who walk in the Spirit. Not because of some mystical experience that brought us to that conclusion. No. But because we are people of the book. And the book drives us to the crucified and resurrected Savior. That's why. True disciples know the tomb is empty because the Bible says so. We love the fact that history and archaeology corroborate the truth of Scripture. But Jesus didn't say, now listen, I'm going to tell you some stuff that's kind of out there, but you don't get excited about it until there's data to back it up. No, he said, this is the word. Abide in it. Me saying it is enough, Jesus says. I am the truth, Jesus will say. Wow. What a Savior. What a God. Now, these Jews that were around him in that moment were near him, and they clearly liked some of the things he was saying because they had showed up to hear him teach, but they wanted more than what he was offering. Actually, they uh, wanted what they wanted more than they wanted what Jesus wanted for them. The folks in the crowd begin to list the reasons that they don't have to go all in with Jesus. You ever have that experience in your life? We do as parents, you do as employers, as managers. You probably do as, as employees, as stewards. In any way, you've probably had a conversation with somebody, asked for something reasonable, and then that person, instead of just kind of leaning in because it's a reasonable request for a human being, decides to articulate all the reasons they don't have to comply with a very reasonable request that you've just made. Um, People make all kinds of cases for themselves when they don't want to do something. Everybody wants to go to heaven when they die, but very few people want to live for Jesus while they're alive. People will use all kinds of reasons to justify why their way is okay and they don't have to do it God's way. They, these Jews thought that since they were Jewish, they were good to go. In fact, in verse 33, John 8:33, just look alone. I won't put it on the screen, but in John 8:33, they, they said, look, we're of our father Abraham. We're free. We've never been enslaved. They think they're free because their great, 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 great granddaddy was somebody. You said that's ridiculous. Some of us tend to claim things that aren't ours because we're in a certain family. Uh, they think they're connected to Abraham and, and that connection is all they need that helps them connect to God. Verse 39 and verse 41, they believe and say it that they are children of God. But watch this, there's a great gap between what they profess and what they possess. It's a big gap too. When I was in London years ago, I remember getting on the tube and everywhere on the bottom in that uh, tube in yellow paint and white paint, there's stripes everywhere that say, mind the gap. Mind the gap. What does that mean? It means there's a little distance between that, where that pavement ends and where that train begins. You know, and I can just see people today on their phones looking at kind of falling and stuff. Mind the gap. We need to mind the gap. Jesus is going to mind the gap for them. Watch what he does. He says, no, no, no. Jesus lowers the hammer on who they are. He says, you're not free. You're enslaved to sin. Jesus said in verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They're not seeking the truth. They're actually intolerant. Watch this crowd that calls for tolerance, but will not tolerate the truth. Amen. It's creeping into our churches more and more. 
They're not seeking the truth. They're actually intolerant. Jesus says, you're seeking to kill me in verse 40. A man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. He said, you want to be like Abraham? Abraham heard the word of God and obeyed. You're hearing the word of God and and puffing up. Verse 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So they they actually, they're not free. They're enslaved. They're not seeking truth. And, And they're actually not just not seeking truth. They're rejecting truth, which means they're acting more like Satan than like God. Verses 44, look at what it says. You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Wow. Do you know that when you lie, you're acting more like Satan than in any other time in your life? Let that settle in for just a moment. And if you get good at lying, that's not a good thing. That's driving a wedge between you and truth. It makes it harder for you to receive and respond to truth when you get comfortable handling and perpetuating lies. So if that's what bondage looks like, isn't it good to be reminded that third point this morning, final point, true disciples are free indeed. Free indeed. Verse 32, we said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free Indeed, I've come to tell you this morning, if you are in bondage, if you are enslaved to sin, there is freedom in Christ. Not a program, not the essence of Scripture, but there's freedom in the person of Jesus Christ revealed through the text of this Bible, and and you are drawn to Him by God's Spirit. What a powerful thing He has for us. If you know Jesus personally and powerfully, you are on the pathway to true and lasting freedom but for many in the church today when we talk about christian freedom we think it's throwing off all social restraints and and doing whatever we want but that's not what jesus or paul spoke about later if your use of freedom has you running to the vices of bondage that's slavery that's not freedom if you are driven about by your own selfish passions and lusts then friend, the word of God teaches that you are looking and acting more like a slave to sin than someone that's free. Real freedom is the ability to say no to the fleeting pleasures of sin and hold out for the fulfilling joy that only comes in Christ. Real freedom is knowing Christ is enough. And I have no FOMO. I have no fear of missing out on anything the world has to offer me in the realm of experience because I am satisfied with Jesus. I am not impressed and almost reviled a bit when mature Christians, quote unquote, come and speak to me of freedom as their get out of holiness free card that they want to laugh around at me. It's just so they can drink, smoke, cuss, and chew and run with those that do. Not impressed by that. I find no such permission slip in Scripture. 
It's a childish misappropriation of freedom. Paul used his freedom to put himself in the path of those who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. He used his freedom to be there so that he could cast off any socio-economic, political, ideological restraint so that he could be in their path, in their way, and share Christ with them. Jesus should be the result of our freedom. The freedom that we enjoy is the freedom that Christ enjoys. Jesus Christ, the King of glory, pumps freedom into the veins of true disciples. He says that we are free indeed. We have the freedom to rise above when the world would pull us down. We have the freedom to to live a holy life that honors God so that people might see God living in and through us. We have the freedom that we've never had before, the freedom to choose right because we're drawn to it, the freedom to choose the best, the freedom to keep on growing, the freedom to reach our potential in Christ. That's what it means to be free indeed. It doesn't come from some mystical, emotional, subjective place or event. It comes from abiding in the Word of God, from knowing and doing God's will, and from being in Christ. True disciples are free. We don't get bothered at all, caught up with most of what bothers and catches up the world. True disciples abide in freedom. As Julia comes this morning, we're going to transition to communion in just a moment. True disciples live in God's word. We're not rushing in and out of it to try to just fix a problem. Abiding means we take a much longer term perspective on things. We aren't seeking immediate, instantaneous results. True disciples know the truth about Jesus and he is the treasure of their lives. True disciples are free indeed. So one of two words describe us this morning in this place, seated on these pews. Are you free? Or are you bound? It doesn't matter who you're related to. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It only matters if you are of God or, and this sounds harsh, but it's the words of Christ, of the devil. James 4 tells us that our love affair with this world makes us an enemy of God. Do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Not popular, but that's the truth. In 2014, Deepak Chopra tweeted this and it almost broke Twitter. All belief is a cover-up for insecurity. In other words, there's no such thing as truth. Even the notion of truth itself is ridiculous to so many. We live in a world where leaders and influencers claim that there's no such thing as right and wrong. There are no more absolutes. There are just experiences for us to have, and you need to experience it all. This is a lie from the father of lies. 
This false teaching, though, has made its way into the church. We find ourselves pulled into a search for a new spiritual high, some new experience because we're not satisfied with the word and not satisfied with normal, everyday, spirit-filled Christian living. We're forfeiting objective biblical revelation for private, mystical experiences. Even when we have our quiet time, we hope to find some new hidden jewel in the text that speaks to our emotions and experiences and gives us this nice, warm buzz for the day. That's not what Jesus promised with Scripture. Actually, you don't have that promise anywhere in Scripture to do it like that. Here's the promise. When we get into the Word and the Word gets into us, we discover the truth that is found only in the person of Jesus Christ, and He changes everything. It changes our perspective. That's why we reject hyper-emotional, over-sentimental approach to God's Word. We reject that. Yes, you, there should be emotion that We've met, right? I'm an emotional guy. But we reject that emotions and sentimentality get in the driver's seat when you come to the Word of God. Instead, we rely on God's Word. Jesus did. And that's where He pointed us. That's what's anointed by the Spirit of God. That leads us to abide in freedom as true disciples. Are you free this morning or are you bound this morning? And if you've been set free by Christ, your Christian brother, sister in Christ, do people watch you live this thing called life and think you're free? Or do you behave like somebody that's bound? Well, the advice to you is the advice to the unbeliever here this morning. It's the same. It's what Jesus calls us all to do. Repent. Believe on Jesus and walk in the Spirit. Let's pray. Consider your holiness this morning. We tremble before you. We close our mouths in holy fear. You are not like us. You are the Lord. You owe us nothing. You are the Lord. We deserve your righteous displeasure, rebuke, and curse. You are the Lord. And yet, you've been so gracious and so merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are unfailingly good to each and every one of us this morning, and your mercy never ends. Lord, we know that this amazing grace is found only in your son, Jesus. He was punished so that we could be forgiven, treated as a blasphemer and traitor, so that we could be blessed as worshipers, executed as a criminal, so we could receive a son's inheritance, and crushed with pain so that we could taste joy and pleasure forever. What grace. This is the gospel. This is our hope and joy. This is our life. And we claim it by faith this morning in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen. This morning, 